Each spring, Pensacola Christian College hosts the Enrichment Retreat designed for pastors, ministry leaders, and church staff to enjoy a time of rest and to be refreshed by the Word of God. Today's message was from a past Enrichment Retreat keynote speaker. Visit enrichmentretreat.com for details or to learn more about the upcoming retreat. Now, the title of this message is Am I Breakable? It's not a message that I enjoy preaching. Uh, or really care to, uh, you know, want to preach, except for I know that it's a reality, um, the, the reality of being clay in God's benevolent hands. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1, um, look with me at verses 8 through 10. We're going to cover several passages throughout this book and several others. Uh, but I pray these next few moments I can encourage you. I want to be a good steward of the time. Verse 8, we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, uh, that would be Western Turkey, modern-day Turkey, okay? Um, mostly Ephesus and some Troas. So Ephesus is on the western coast, kind of the southwestern coast. Troas is straight north of that. Uh, but all that Asia region that Paul ministered to while he was at Ephesus and then beyond in Troas, that we were pressed out of measure. So let these phrases... You know, sink in as we read them. Pressed out of measure. It was, it was above, it was beyond us. We were being broken. Look at the next phrase, above strength. We, we just couldn't take this. It was beyond our ability to endure. Insomuch that we despaired even of life. This is going to kill me. I might not survive this. I don't want to live. These, 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 all these phrases, we despair even of life. But, think how the, the contrast turns here. But, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. How many of you have heard the story, uh, it's, this goes way back, of Chippy the Parakeet? Does this bring back memories to some of you? A lot of you haven't heard this story. I thought for sure everybody has heard this story. This is from a very old Max Lucado book. I'm going back maybe 25 or 30 years. Chippy the Parakeet never saw it coming. One second, he was peacefully perched in his cage. The next, he was sucked in, washed up, and blown over. The problems began when Chippy's owner decided to clean Chippy's cage with a vacuum cleaner. She removed the attachment from the end of the hose and stuck it into the cage. The phone rang, and she turned to pick it up. She had barely said hello when Chippy got sucked in. The bird owner gasped, put the phone down, turned off the vacuum, and opened the bag. There was Chippy, still alive, but stunned. (laughs) Since the bird was covered with dust and soot, she grabbed him and raced to the bathroom, turned on the faucet, and held Chippy under the running water. Then, realizing that Chippy was soaked and shivering, she did what any compassionate bird owner would do. She reached for the hairdryer and blasted the pet with hot air. (laughs) Poor Chippy never knew what hit him. A few days after the trauma, the reporter who initially had written about the event contacted Chippy's owner to see how the bird was recovering. Well, she replied, Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. (laughs) He just sits and stares. <laughs> it's hard not to see why. Sucked in, washed up, and blown over. That's enough to steal the song from the stoutest heart. Have you ever felt sucked in, washed up, and blown over? Have you ever felt that going into a season, your, ho- your heart was stout, and suddenly... You just want to sit and stare. 
the week I, I preached this message, I had just a flurry of activity or prepared this message for our church family, flurry of activity. And, and you know, the ministry, if you've been at it any length of time, it's just a, it's a series of just peaks and valleys and completely unpredictable in their occurrence. Um, and the Saturday, I, I, I told my church family I should not have prepared this message this week because if I'm going to tell the story of Chippy the Parakeet, I know God's going to probably put me through it somehow. And that is sure enough what happened. And uh, Saturday mor- that Saturday morning, I had a, I, I had a funeral for a, a wonderful man in, in our church who had suffered more than probably any adult I've ever known. My last visit to him in the hospital was him just... Uh, just, I mean, it just broke your heart. You just couldn't even stand at his bedside without weeping and seeing how much suffering he was in. And I had shared the gospel at his homegoing service. So all of his, most of his family were atheists. They were very angry at me, even while I was sharing the gospel with them, though he had asked me to do so. Uh, so there was this, there's this, there's the trauma of his loss and his wife who's grieving and his extended family who's sitting there at the service angry and you're preaching the gospel and you know you're ministering care and compassion on some level and you're feeling sorrow but you're also getting the heat, the blast of the anger of these people. I left that, uh, that, that service exhausted emotionally after a long week of ministry and, and, um, I, w- I made w- my way to Chick-fil-A for the fourth birthday of my grandchildren, uh, and I was late to the party because the service had, had gone on and the greeting of people, and so I kind of snuck in, and, and the activity was kind of winding down, and I, I found my spot there where everybody was kind of gathered and congregating and celebrating their four year, fourth year birthday, and I sat down in the booth, and about the time I sat down, literally, it was almost like because I got there, everybody stood up, packed up, and left. And said, bye. And, and so I looked at Dana. I'm just sitting there by myself in this booth. I looked at Dana, and I'm like, wow, I walked in. Everybody left. Thanks. You know? And we had a good laugh about that. And I'm sitting there. I'm eating my, my chicken nuggets or whatever I had. And I, was, I just felt like this in this moment. I just wanted to sit and stare. Okay? The song was gone. I just want to sit and stare. In fact, it was a moment that I'm sitting there thinking, I need something right now to cheer me up. I'm sitting in Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A has really good milkshakes. But I don't want to get up and go wait in line for a milkshake. So I kid you not, I opened my Chick-fil-A app. I placed a mobile order. I'm sitting there with my head back against the... My wife's like, are you okay? I said, I have just... I just feel like I've been sucked in, washed up, and blown over. And then I said, could you go get my milkshake for me? <laughs> she said, what milkshake? I said, I just did a mobile order. It's right back here. And she stood up and went and got the milkshake. And a few moments later, I felt so much better. So um, the moral here is that a milkshake or a cinnamon roll cures everything. It just makes everything better for the moment. Um, in, in all reality, if you've been in, in ministry any length of time, you can identify with the feeling of, of uh, emptiness or brokenness or depletion on lots of levels. Um, what we're going to see in the next few moments in the Apostle Paul goes deeper than, I just need a milkshake. And we don't imagine um, a connection. It's, it's not intuitive. A connection between brokenness and usefulness. Um, we inadvertently construct a theology that is not a biblical theology, but it's a theology of avoiding brokenness. Avoiding discomfort and pain um, and avoiding weakness, uh, we, we kind of have the expectation in our minds that um, if we're pressed out of measure, above strength, despairing of life, in a sentence of death, that we're doing something wrong. I mean, we, we have this theology that the Christian life is one of joy and strength and uh, more than conquerors and perfect love casts out fear and and, and yet the Apostle Paul, the same man who wrote many of those words I just quoted to you, said he had seasons. And uh, there are more than one or two, by the way, seasons of his ministry where he experienced deep, deep God-ordained, uh, God-governed brokenness. We don't think of broken things as useful, though. When stuff breaks around my house, it gets crammed somewhere until we can fix it. We just, we just render it as not useful. Uh, or we throw it away, or we sell it broken, or we uh, you know, ignore it until we you know, eventually get rid of it somehow. Broken things 
Um, we either want to fix or we, we devalue them and dismiss them. Uh, or we think we need to fix it so that it becomes useful. But what I want to propose to you is that God makes a very biblical connection uh, between brokenness and usefulness. And uh, he sees our usefulness through our brokenness. He does beautiful work in brokenness. None of us would choose brokenness. None of us are like, oh yeah, break me. (laughs) Bring it, God, break me. All of us want to be useful. You're not here. Uh, You wouldn't be here if you didn't want to be useful to God. I hope that these next few moments will give you a theology that's biblical in terms of brokenness. I hope that it will frame your expectations. More than anything, um, if you are in a season, there's three groups of people in the room. Um, the, the older you are, and young people can experience this too, but usually it's, it's as you age. The older you are, the, the more you've been broken. And so you're going to be nodding a lot while I'm talking. You're gonna, yeah. Kind of like we were with Dr. Amsall this morning about all the therapeutic things you were saying about the rigors of ministry. Um, so there's that group that's experienced it. You, you don't want it. It's not like you're asking for it for Christmas or your next birthday, but you've been through it and you know the, the, the beauty that God weaves together from it. So you wouldn't undo it. And you would trace a lot of your biggest blessings to the fruit of the brokenness. Uh, there are those that are in the middle of the brokenness right now and you are free-falling psychologically and emotionally and spiritually. And you maybe even just happened here like, the, sometimes the last thing we want to do is walk into a room full of people that we think they've all got it together. And here I am suffering, here I am hurting, here I am depressed, here I am despairing. I'm, I'm sure there's people in the room that are there. You're in the grip of it. It might be a trial. It might not be even tangible or understandable. You might not have any idea what it is. You just know you don't want to live. Or you know you don't have the strength you need. Or you, you just know that the, that the life has been sucked out of you. And you're, maybe you're wondering, where, where is this uh, power of God? Where is this power of the gospel, the joy? Uh, where is the energy and the life that I'm supposed to be helping other people have that I don't even have a sense of right now? Okay? I, I, I want you to hear Paul again. Press out of measure above strength, despaired even of life. The great apostle Paul. I don't want to live. I don't think I'm going to live. I think this is going to kill me. Sentence of death. God does beautiful work in brokenness. So if you've been through it, you know that. If you're in it, you need to hear this. And I pray that every verse and every word of these next few moments will, will be fresh water to a dry heart. And that you'll, it, won't solve your bro, it won't solve your breaking season right now. It's a, it's a thing you go through. But it, you can have hope in it. And you can... You can you can endure knowing there's a purpose, there's a reason, there's, there's, a, there's a method. God's not, God's not forgotten you. He's not messing with you. It's, it, this isn't fate. Uh, things haven't gone off the rails. You're, you're right on his script. You're not on your script. Uh, you're, right, you're right within the bounds of what Scripture says you should expect of life. Jesus said, in the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. See, uh, the, the scripture doesn't know anything of a life without uh, brokenness or without difficulty. A, a, a faith life without difficulty. Fr- frankly, any life without difficulty. There's, there's two lives. There's the life without God, and that life just breaks you and doesn't love you. Okay, And then there's life with God, and that life breaks you in love. Because you know your God is allowing the breaking in love. And he's doing something marvelous and beautiful. He's doing something that one day is going to blow your mind and delight your heart and want it with wonder and, and rejoicing. But in the middle of the brokenness, it's despairing, it's a sentence of death, it's I don't know if I want to live. It's depression, it's deep, it's, it's rock bottom. Um, Paul continues, well, he, he actually go back, you don't have to turn there, 1 Corinthians 2, his relationship with the church at Corinth began this way, I was with you in weakness, 
and in fear and in much trembling. I want you to think about this. Again, the great Apostle Paul, when he got to Corinth, and if you remember, this is the end of Acts 17 coming into Acts 18. It's the second missionary journey. He has been thrust, he has been stoned and beaten and imprisoned time after time on on the first two journeys. Things go, he goes into town, things go well, things go bad. He gets driven out. And the circumstances from city to city are slightly different, but generally the same. Uh, Some people believe, some people rise up against him. He gets his brains beat out, he gets thrown in jail, he gets oppressed, and he gets driven out of town. And um, so this has happened time and time again. Finally, they, um, they send him, I think it's Berea was the last city, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly. I'm doing this extemporaneously, so forgive me if that's wrong. But they, they thrust him out, and his friends go, get on this boat and get out of town. We, we're going to save your life. And he, and he leaves his team behind. And you can track it. Every time Paul is without his team, he hits bottom. He, he was so drawing strength and hope from his team, okay, which that, that in, in itself could be... A, its own message. But he gets on a boat, he sails to Athens. He gets into Athens alone. He's not planning to plant a church there. He's really out of strength. He's, as he says here, weak, fear, trembling. He's out of money, too. He gets to Athens and uh, he sees the city wholly given to idolatry. Uh, if you ever get the chance to go to Athens and see the Agora and the Acropolis, please do it. Athens and Corinth, it's just mind-blowing uh, to, to be in these places where Paul, where these events happened. And you can, you, you can see the geography, you can see the port, how he would have come in and come into Athens and seen that Acropolis with the temple. And all over the, the city of Athens, there were temples after temples after temples. They look like churches in New England, actually. They, the columns and the arch and the pillars and all that, that's actually an ancient uh, first century Greco-Roman temple is where that came from. So when you say, well, that church doesn't look like a church, what you're really saying is it doesn't look like an ancient Greek temple. Um, that's just neither here nor there. But uh, it is ironic how the first century Christians that became Christians turned the temples into churches, and now 2,000 years later we think it looks like a church, and it really goes back to looking like a temple. But Paul goes to Athens. He reasons. He doesn't get very far. The philosophers, they kind of scorn him and make fun of him. He leaves town with just a handful of people that trusted Christ. So he's, he's struggling um, I, I think he has at this point, and this is just my conjecture based on 1 Corinthians 2.3, a form of P, what we would call PTSD. Why do I think that? Well, because he says, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. Trembling. How many times do you get beaten, stoned, mobbed, riot, driven out of town before you start to twitch a little? Seriously. I mean, he's just human. He's not, he's not an avenger. I mean, this stuff affects him like it would affect you. And time after time, he ends up journeying uh, what would be a 90-minute drive you know, to Corinth, he, along that narrow strip of land between the Mediterranean and the Aegean Sea. On the southern shore, Mediterranean, not Aegean, Ionian Sea, you have um, the Port of Centria, and then you have, you have just this, like, like a seven-mile stretch of land, and then Corinth was there, on the shores of the Ionian Sea. So looking, it's on the slope that's looking north, huge Acropolis behind Corinth, and the city was built into this slope that slopes down gently towards the Ionian Sea. Beautiful, beautiful region. So Paul uh, finds his way to Corinth, which was a bigger city than Athens at the time. When he gets to Corinth, he takes a job. He makes tents with Aquila and Priscilla, again, because he's out of money. He doesn't have a lot of energy, so he simply goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath. And, and instead of preaching in the markets and like he normally does, he reduces his ministry to one day a week and, and simply that, teaching the Jews and reasoning in the synagogues. Uh, probably a product of PTSD, discouragement, loneliness, weakness, and uh, no money. So he's got to work a job bivocationally, um, and, and he's ministering a little um, all the while fearful, as he says, trembling in weakness. And it's some months later, and by the way, he's at Corinth for 18 months, and it's a, it's a beautiful place to be if you just need to resuscitate a little bit and re-energize um, that Mediterranean region. 
Um, so his companions arrive, Silas and, and the entourage. And when they get there, they've got an offering for him. They finally meet back up with him. And uh, the scripture says in, in uh, first, I'm sorry, Acts 18, that when they arrived, his spirit was pressed. And the, and the sense of the, of the pressing is that he was re-energized and reburdened, you could say, and re-resourced. So his spirit was refreshed, and uh, he began once again on a full-time basis to preach the gospel there in Corinth. But that again stirred up opposition, and the Jews rose up against him. And this is the story of him being brought to the bema, the judgment seat, in the middle of Corinth, and being put on trial. And the, right before that happened, again, fear, weakness, trembling, I can imagine Paul fearing, is this going to happen again? And in the middle of all that, that's one of the occasions of several where God comes to him in a dream, and he has a vision. Jesus stands by him. And that's where the account says, um, fear not, I'm with you. I have much people in this city. Uh, No man is going to set on you to hurt you. Now, God doesn't, listen, God doesn't stand by you in that moment and say those words to you unless you need to hear them. So just by virtue of God's reassuring and re-strengthening him, we can understand he was fearful. What's going to happen in this trial tomorrow or whenever the timeline was? What's going to happen? Am I going to get stoned and beaten and driven out of town again? How is this going to go? And God says, no, Paul, I've got plans for this city. There's a lot of people here that are going to become followers of Jesus, and, and we're going to grow a church here, Paul. So don't, don't be afraid to speak up and to, and to re-engage in ministry. So, so Paul is at this moment weak, and he's re-energized, and he's, he's hit bottom, but he's refueled and re-resourced, if you will. And 18 months, he has a fruitful ministry there at Corinth, and a thriving church grows, and lots of people become followers of Christ. It was either this, this time or another, another visit through Corinth that he wrote the book of Romans. So this was a very fruitful... We think of Corinth today as a problem church, and it became that. It had problems, but it was, it was a pivotal, it was a critical church at a critical time in Paul's life. Well, he, in all of this, is seeing this born out of weakness. And so I, I, I lay that foundation, and I want to share with you three thoughts as we track the story. There's a narrative here that isn't precisely recorded in Acts, but we can stitch together the pieces from Acts and then First and Second Corinthians. And to me, it's one of the most captivating... Um, unvisited, like I never knew that Paul faced depression. I never knew that the great apostle Paul had seasons of his life where he despaired of life. Like, I know he says it, but do you really believe it? Like, really? I never knew that he went through long periods of time at rock bottom. But, so in other words, his theology was not that he would never experience these things. His theology was he would experience these things, but how would he experience these things? Like, how would he navigate them when they came? And so in my journey of 43 years with the Lord, I've gone through a long season where I thought, you know, um, gospel work is really about avoiding the hardship. And if you're doing all these things right, then things will go well for you. That's not... Christianity, that's karma. Karma is do good and good stuff happens. The gospel is you're bad and good stuff is being offered to you by Jesus. Okay? That's, I mean, it's totally different theology. And the gospel is you live in a broken world, but you serve a savior who's bigger than that broken world and uses all that brokenness, including yours, for his glory. And he's working all things together for good. And he will allow your brokenness to produce his greatest fruit, his greatest glory, and your, your greatest blessings. If you don't want brokenness, then you don't want the gospel. You don't want Jesus. Jesus was broken for us. Okay. So I'm not... The third group of people in the room is the, those that have been through it, those that are in it, those that haven't been in it yet. And what I would say to you is, stop wishing I would be quiet. 
Like, you need to hear this because this is reality. But you can take the promise of Christ literally. In the world, you have tribulation. You're not going to avoid it. You, I had a guy say to me about my cancer one time, and he didn't realize he was insulting me. We were sitting at lunch, and he was asking me questions about my cancer journey. And, and he said, I just hope that I can learn these lessons that God wants to teach me without him having to do that to me. <laughs> like, Carrie, you're so stupid that God just had to nearly kill you. And I hope he doesn't have to do that to me. What he didn't re- that's not how it works. It's not like stupid people have hard lives because that's just what it takes. You know, you're so thick-skulled that God nearly has to kill you to get through to you. He, no. If so, then we're all that thick-headed, okay? There's just certain things he, he can't do until we're broken. There, there's certain things that, that can't happen until we experience his deconstruction of who we think we are. I spent a long time of my life doing for God, building a life that I thought he would be pleased with, and then he totally deconstructed it. Like, <laughs> I'm like, God, there it is. And he goes, <sighs> like a house of cards, it just blew all down. And I'm like, what are you doing? I worked hard to build that for you. And he goes, yeah, we don't need that anymore. And he just kind of wiped it all out. And I'm telling you, for the better part of two years, and I'm not talking about being sick, by the way. This, the, the illness was a totally different thing. For the better part of two years, in retrospect, I can look back on it and say, I think that was depression. And in the middle of it, there was joy, and there was blessing, and there was hardship. It was blended of a lot of stuff. But I spent a lot of long mornings in Dunkin' Donuts around slushy, icy environment going, how did I get here? And why am I here? And God, where are you? And who am I? And where am I? And the only reason I went to Dunkin' Donuts is because it was orange and pink and warm and happy and coffee tasted good and the people there were nice to me. (laughs) And, and, And that was like, it was just the only way I could find some cheer in an otherwise very barren life. If you've ever watched Monsters, Inc., all my illustrations come from Disney movies. Um, I was banished. I was Mike and Sully out in the frozen, you know, uh, tundra. It, it was, I just felt like God had banished me, and I didn't understand what was going on. Um, so three thoughts very quickly. First of all, brokenness is a reality on the Jesus journey. Brokenness is a reality on the Jesus journey. When Paul gets to 2 Corinthians, and we, we read it, um, trouble, pressed out of measure, above strength, we despaired. That word despaired is despondent, utterly lost. No anchor points, no reference points. Where am I? How did I get here? Where is this all going? The deconstruction of all of his expectations, the deconstruction of all of his identity, who he thought he was, uh, all, all of his uh, securities, they're just gone. And he's despondent, he's despairing even of life. Um, so this is a, a, a Christianity totally contrary to karma because he's doing all the right things and bad things are happening and bad emotions are emerging and he's seized by these things. And, and in this brokenness, one of the things I want to say here is that brokenness reveals our core trust. Two things here. Brokenness reveals our core trust, and it produces a core trust. And this is why brokenness is so important and so vital on God's journey. What, what happens to us? We tie our trust to things that we are doing and we are manufacturing, to things that we are producing for God. We tie our trust to material, physical blessings and provisions, and we don't even realize we're doing it. We place our core trust in these things, and when we realize, here's when we realize that's where our core trust was, our response when those things break. Our our response when we lose those things. 
It's like the solid ground we were standing on suddenly falls out from under us and the free-falling experience spiritually, psychologically, and emotionally leaves us despairing and emotionally empty and depressed. Why? Because what we were trusting is now gone. So that's why I say it re- brokenness reveals what you were trusting. But the other thing that brokenness does, if you respond the right way and let God do what he's doing, okay? And by the way, there's an entire book of the Bible called Psalms and another one called Lamentations that teach us how to handle every human emotion. It is God's medicine chest, chest for human emotions and how to respond. And it is always right to express whatever emotion you're feeling to God. That is never sinful. You can complain out up to God. You can cry out to God. Read the Psalms. Oh, Lord, how long? Why? Why have you done this? Over and over and over, the laments are directed to God. Now, you've crossed the line when you go from crying out to God to just complaining about God. Like back turned, head down, stewing in self-pity, miring in self-pity, and, and denying God access to those emotions. So the emotions don't need to control you. They don't define you. The experience does not define you. This season does not define you. But the emotions do need to be handled properly. And the response needs to be premeditated. A big part of what we're going to see here is that Paul understood or learned somewhere along the journey how to differentiate who he was and who Jesus was from what he was experiencing emotionally and psychologically. He learned how to distinguish them. There was a a large chunk of my life where how I felt was, became my experience. And I, I simply lived out of, even though I was being taught, don't trust your emotions, don't be, you know, don't, you know. In fact, I was more taught much of my life, just stuff your emotions. Like, don't, you're not supposed to feel that way. That, you're not even allowed to feel that way. Well, time out. Paul expresses, he had some really deep, dis, despairing emotions. And they were very real, and he was experiencing them. And they're not sinful in the sense that we tend to think of them as being sinful. I'm going I'm to give you a list of Bible characters in a minute that dealt with uh, depression, the, the, the biblical terms being equivalent to those we use today as depression. Uh, so it's not always sinful. It can be. It can become sinful. My response to it can become sinful. But the experience of these emotions needs to be processed biblically. And that's what the Psalms are about. That's what the laments are about. It's about processing. It's about recognizing my emotions don't own me. They don't define me. Um, they, they, they're, a pro, they're a part of my human experience, and God understands them. And it's only really in the power of God's presence that your emotions can be reshaped and, uh, and redefined. Once you bring them into his presence, uh, the psalmist said, it, it, then it's not until I went into the house of the Lord that I understood their end. Uh, um, Jeremiah said in Lamentations 3, read the first, I don't know, 17, 18, 19 verses of Lamentations 3, and you don't want that God. He is brutal. He has filled me with wormwood. That's what they should call chemotherapy, wormwood. You know, uh, he's broken my teeth. I mean, Jeremiah is brutal in his account of God. And later in that chapter, he says, this I recall to mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. Great is thy faithfulness. Thy mercies are new every morning. So here's my point. One of our favorite passages of God's grace and faithfulness and mercy is born out of verses right preceding it of a man pouring out destitution to God and complaints about God and and the brutality of his life. And then he comes back around and says, great is your faithfulness. You see, it's only God that can reframe our emotions but, but God has this way of revealing our core trust, removing that core trust, and then replanting that core trust in him. And it's brokenness that, that lets that process happen. The story of Paul at Corinth continues, and I'm running out of time rapidly. Uh, Cor- Paul's 
Let me choose my words here. Paul's journey with Corinth, his journeys span 10, 10 years or so. And he leaves that first visit to Corinth, which he started in weakness and fear and trembling. Um, he, en- he, he ends up uh, going back through parts of Asia, back to Jerusalem very quickly, uh, Antioch very quickly, and then right back on his third journey. He comes to Ephesus. He stays three years. Things go great at Ephesus. He ministers that whole region. Uh, Ephesus, there's the riot. You remember that? And he gets driven out of town again, even after a long time at Ephesus, okay? While he's at Ephesus, and there's a bit of, uh, a little bit of conjecture here, but when you stitch together the breadcrumbs, you're going to come up with something like this. While he's at Ephesus, the church at Corinth has problems. Lots of problems emerge over those years, okay? Bad leaders find their way into leadership. They're fornicating. Uh, They're comparative. They're judgmental. They're divisive. Uh, They're pitting, they're personality focused. Some like Paul, some like Peter, some like Apollos. Um, They're power trippy. And the church uh, uh, falls into um, conflict and contention and problems. Paul gets word of that, and he begins to try to resolve the problems from a distance. The first, he writes a letter. He sends, I think, Timothy with that letter, um, dealing with the problems. That's not 1 Corinthians, by the way. 1 Corinthians is the second letter. He writes four letters. We only have two of them, okay? So they don't receive the letter well. They write back with, with questions, uh, he tries to answer the questions and, and still rebuking the problem, especially the fornicating leader, and um, sends that letter, and it's not received well. At some point, um, while he's in that Asia Minor area, he goes to Corinth, because he says in 2 Corinthians, I, I'm not going to come to you again with hardness. So he, he actually went in person a very short trip, and it didn't go well. It blew up. Uh, he was confronted. He was rejected. The power holders were trying to, to keep control. So, so listen, the people that he went to in weakness and won in grace and love, now they've rejected him. He ends up back in Ephesus, um, despairing now of the situation at Corinth, the burden at Corinth. Um, then he gets thrust out of Ephesus. He ends up in, in Troas. Um, and Sometime between Ephesus and Troas, he wrote um, this, this final letter to Corinth, which is 2 Corinthians, okay? No, I'm sorry. He wrote a third letter. Let me back up. He wrote a third letter, and he sent it with Titus. The church is still in turmoil. He's in turmoil because the church is in turmoil. And he, is, he goes to Troas, escaping Ephesus, and he's waiting in Troas. And his agreement is, Titus, take this letter to Corinth and then come back and give me a report, but try to resolve the problems. Titus had an epic assignment to go to this problem church and navigate all these problems and try to resolve and, and bring the church back to health. Well, Paul is in Troas, and you track this through um, 2 Corinthians, and... Um, This is where we pick up in in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians. Look at verse 8 again very quickly with me. When uh, we would not have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia. Okay, so it's when he's in Asia waiting for Titus to come back with news on the church. I want you to turn over to chapter 2. Chapter 2. Look at verse 12. And what he does is he comes into the narrative and then he breaks away and gives instruction and he comes back to the narrative. And he does this throughout the book, okay, in multiple places. But look at chapter 2 and verse 12. Furthermore, when I came to, what is it? Say it out loud. Troas to preach Christ's gospel. So remember, he's navigating this difficulty. He's bearing this heavy burden for this church. They've rejected him. Titus is there. He doesn't know how it's going. Uh, Now he's in Troas trying to preach the gospel. When I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, a door was opened unto me of the Lord. Big open door. Look at verse 13. I had no rest in my spirit because I found not Titus my brother. Look at what happens next. But taking my leave of them. It's the only place in scripture 
where Paul says, I had a wide open door to plant a church and preach the gospel, but I couldn't. I couldn't even function. So I left. Imagine. And, and pretty much every authority or scholar would say that was a deep kind of dark depression. He can't even preach the gospel when he's got a wide open door. No energy, no life, no vision. Why? His spirit has no rest. He goes to Macedonia across the Aegean Sea where Philippi is. Why? He's waiting for Titus. He's looking for Titus. i got to have Titus. i got to get word. I, I, my spirit is all bound up, and I can't function. Look at verse uh, chapter 2 and verse 4. Out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears. This man is going through a very low point, and it's a long, low point. And, and here's the eight Bible figures that I count that fought some form, some season, whether brief or long, kind of depression. David, Elijah, Jonah, Job, Moses, Jeremiah, Jesus, and Paul. So if you're being broken right now, take hope. You're in pretty good company. And you're going to get through it, but your brokenness lies to you and says, you're done, it's over, you might as well not go forward, you might as well give up. And if you've never been through this, you need to reckon in your own mind, when I come to rock bottom, when I hit bottom, I don't need my emotions to own me or destroy me. I need to differentiate those emotions from who I am and who God is, and I need to journey through them with God. And I want you to see secondly and quickly, and I'll wrap this up very quickly. Brokenness is always a prelude to usefulness. Brokenness is, number one, a reality on the Jesus journey. Number two, it is always a prelude to usefulness. Some of you, I'm going to date myself here. Some of you remember uh, these words. Steve Austin, astronaut, a man barely alive. Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. We have the capability to make the world's first bionic man. Steve Austin will be that man better than he was before. Better, stronger, faster. How many of you remember that? Come on, some, you, more of you watch TV than that. that. That's when TV was great. What's the name of that show? Six million dollar man. That's, the, that's when TV was great. My brother Matt actually went five years of his life actually believing he was <laughs> bionic. I mean, we watch that show every week. Six million dollar man. Uh, the man that was destroyed, nearly destroyed, but rebuilt. God, listen, God never allows your breaking without already understanding your rebuilding. He never deconstructs you without a plan to reconstruct you. That's what he does. We call it sanctification. We call it growth. Everybody wants to grow. Everybody wants to be sanctified. Everybody wants to reach their potential. But nobody wants to be broken. Well, they're, they're mutually incompatible. God's way of shaping is breaking. Therefore, brokenness is not something that stops us. It's something that actually is the prelude to to starting. Paul didn't see his brokenness as a wall that stopped him. He saw his brokenness as a valley to walk through. Chapter 7. Turn over there very quickly. 2 Corinthians 7. He picks up the narrative again. He says, For when we were coming to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. Look at these words. We were troubled on every side, Without were fightings, and within were fears. This is the second or third time that this man has confessed to being fearful. And this is the same man that later writes to Timothy and says, God hath not given us a spirit of fear. Fear not. So the man that wrote those words, God's not given us a spirit of fear, is confessing to struggling with fear. That, I don't know about you, but that so comforts me. It's like, oh, okay. So this might take me 40 years to learn the Christian life. So this might be a really long journey. And I might struggle about things that later I even write to other people. But don't struggle with that. Yeah, that's how it goes. But look at verse 6. Nevertheless, God that comforteth those that are cast down comforted us 
by the coming of Titus. Titus found Paul. Paul found Titus. In Macedonia, they reunited. Titus had good news. He was successful. Still problems in the church, but they were going to receive Paul. They received Titus. They received the final rebukes and final instructions of Paul. And so Paul writes 2 Corinthians from Macedonia saying, Yay! Yay, I'm so happy that you repented. I'm so happy because we've gone through so much. We've borne so much. We've hit so um, so many rock bottoms for you and because of you and in love for you. I am so refreshed. And suddenly the resolution of the season through Titus, by the way, was a source of strength and resurgence of energy to Paul. And if you get nothing else, get this. There's going to be times of your journey that, that it's all going to fall apart and you're not going to know what's going on or where you are or why you are and you're going to wonder what you did wrong or where, where did God go wrong? How did this fall apart? And you need to remember in those times it happened to Paul. It happened, hey, why did Jesus wait three days to resurrect? Like, I, you could give me a lot of theological reasons, I'm sure. But I just think of the disciples waiting three days like, that, was, that would have been the darkest, most discombobulated three days. Paul, after he got knocked down on the road to Damascus, and the light, and who art thou, Lord? Go to Damascus. He sits three days. Doesn't eat or drink anything. Three days. You know, Jesus could have sent Ananias to him, like, the next day. He's like, go sit in the corner for three days. Just think about all the Old Testament you've messed up. <laughs> it's kind of what he was saying to Paul. And I think for three days, Paul's stitching together all the prophecies and all the, all the figures and all, oh my goodness, Jesus is God. Oh, and now I get it. You know, three days of putting it all together. What a seminary. But, but, the, but the three days of downtime must have just been deathly. Deathly. These seasons of hardship. Brokenness is a prelude to use... I will tell you personally. Oh, look at verse 13. Therefore, we were, com- seven, chapter 7, verse 13. We were comforted in your comfort, yea, exceedingly and more joyed. He's totally okay now. If you're being broken and you're in the middle of the grips of all that, you're literally one breath of God away from all the joy and energy and life returning. You don't need to commit suicide. You don't need to get a divorce. You don't need to cheat on your spouse and find a new spouse. You don't need to do something stupid or crazy. Or irrational. You need to wait. You need to take those emotions to God and cry out to him. You need to walk through the valley of the shadow of death and wait on the Lord and be of good courage. And continually, intentionally, in spite of your emotions, in spite of your feelings, in spite of your experience, continually, emotionally, re, 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 reboot, reground, cry out to God. What did I do in Dunkin' Donuts on those lonely mornings? I moped for about two hours and then I would write a stupid blog post and I'd write myself out of my funk. You know, I'd, I'd pick a psalm or pick a, a promise, and, and, and God's still God. I don't know where I am, who I am, what's going on, but God's still God. And one day there'll be clarity. One day you'll be comforted. Before, I'll tell you this by personal testimony, before God's greatest blessings in my life, there was God's breaking. I wouldn't undo the broken because the blessings are that much better. Third principle, very quickly, and I'm done. I'm not even going to really preach this point, but this this is where you should take this with your church family if you visit this topic. Brokenness is a prerequisite for salvation. I don't know if you've ever thought of this, but but your brokenness is a platform for gospel. It's not something that should flatten you. It's something you stand up on. Uh, Your kids are testing your faith. And being broken before your kids is something that says to them, hey, we trust God even when we're breaking. Yeah, God's still God. When I got cancer, I sat with my kids and I said, hey, God, we still, we, guys, we still love God, trust God, live for God, no matter what. If I die of cancer, I go to heaven. See you guys later. See you soon. I'm not saying it's not emotional and hard and difficult. I'm just saying we're not going to lose hope and faith. God is still God. And God owns me. If he wants to kill me early, he can kill me early. He wants to lengthen my life, he can lengthen my life. And either way, he's going to hold us, hold us together until we see him. And, 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 and your trial, listen, your trial is something like, like if I pulled this chair up here, and, uh, and, and you have two choices. You can sit down and mope and cry. And, and by the way, do that occasionally. But, but mostly stand up and say, hey, let me tell you all about how good God is in the middle of suffering. 
Because people that would never listen to the gospel from you, when you're suffering, they'll listen to the gospel all day long. People that you never would have had a chance to talk to, you'll talk to because of your suffering. It is a platform for the gospel. Your brokenness is an opportunity to magnify Christ. It's a stewardship. And, and by the way, it's such a picture of the gospel because someone can't come to Christ unless they're broken. Okay? Unless they acknowledge their sinfulness. Unless they acknowledge their brokenness, they can't even be saved. And Jesus couldn't offer salvation without being broken. And so brokenness has a straight line to coming to Christ and to leading people to Christ in the gospel. And by the way, it is the gospel from your brokenness that gives other broken people hope in the gospel. And so we could explore that for a long time. God told Jeremiah in closing, in Jeremiah 18, he said, uh, Jeremiah, I want you to go down to the potter's house. And I want you to take a look at what's happening there. So Jeremiah goes down to the potter's house. He says in verse 3, I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheel. So picture in your mind, like a DVD, a spinning wheel with clay and the potter. The clay doesn't have a will. The clay is pliable and moldable, and, and the potter's working the clay. And he says in verse 4, the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. There was a problem. There was, there was an imperfection. And you've probably seen this. And when there's something that goes wrong in the potter, what, is it, what does a potter do with the clay? He just, pile, he just collapses it, right? He just plows it in on itself, starts all over to reshape what, he's, what he was shaping. And that is what it feels like in our brokenness. It's like everything we had and understood about life that we felt we had control over just collapsed and just, just imploded on us when really it was the work of the potter. And then it says, and so he made again another vessel as seemed good to the potter to make. And God said, behold, as the clay is in the potter's hands, so are ye in my hand. Isaiah compliments this by saying, woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Shall the clay say unto him that fashioned it, what makest thou or thy work? The simple illustration here is clay doesn't have a will. Clay has but to sit still and stay soft. Sit still and stay soft. And let God do what he's doing with you. I don't know what he's doing with you. But I know this, he's good. He's always doing good things. And whether you come through it, whether you're in the middle of it, whether you haven't faced it yet, just remember this. He does beautiful work in brokenness. And you're not alone. Paul experienced deep brokenness. And the same God that brought him through it and comforted him is going to comfort you too. You've been listening to a message from the Pensacola Christian College Enrichment Retreat. You're welcome to pass this message along to others, but we ask that you do not charge for it without written permission from Pensacola Christian College. If you're a pastor or ministry leader, join us for the next Enrichment Retreat and experience a time of physical rest and spiritual refreshment. To learn more, visit EnrichmentRetreat.com.